It's a wonderful joy and a privilege and an honor to be back with you again at the Lifeboat this wonderful, beautiful Lord's Day morning. Thank you, Roy, for your very warm words of welcome. We always feel welcomed, and we appreciate the warmth of your friendship and fellowship, and we appreciate deeply those of you who pray for us and for our ministry. We thank God for you all, and we trust and pray that this will be a very precious and blessed day. And boys and girls, it's really nice to see you all this morning as well. Uh, I always love to see the boys and girls. Sometimes they're the overlooked congregation. And I almost was going to bring a children's story with me, but I just didn't do that. So maybe if there's another time, we'll have a special spot for you in the will of the Lord. So again, it's a joy to be back and sharing, and what wonderful singing, and what great words we have been singing today. We're going to read together now from the New Testament Scriptures, from God's Word. We're reading from 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to commence to read at verse 1. We shall read the first five verses, and then from verse 13. So the first five verses of 1 Peter... And then from verse 13 onward. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And if we were to bring that into present-day terminology, we would be speaking of Turkey, the land of Turkey. That's where those regions were located. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then verse 13. Wherefore, that's a link word, from what we have already read and other verses that go before it. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation 
received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, and raised, that raised him up from the dead, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. And concluding there at verse 25, and knowing and praying also that God will bless his own precious and inspired word to our hearts. Aren't we so privileged to have the word of God? How rich we are how many there are who have never had it, and those who have not had the Scriptures nor the Gospel, and who live today in darkness and far from God, and yet we have the Bible, the living, dynamic, powerful, expressive Word of God, God's breathing to our race and to our hearts. What a great book it is. We're going to unite in prayer together. Our Heavenly Father, we are so privileged. We are so enriched and rich today because we have thy word as we have just been thinking in these opening moments of comments. And we pray today, Lord, that this treasure which we have in our homes will not only be in our hands but in our hearts, Lord. For we know that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And we have read today that the things of time and sense are passing, and all the glory of man is as a passing flower, and yet the Word of our God standeth forever. Thou hast magnified thy Word, Lord, even above all thy name. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but thy Word shall not pass away. And I pray today that as we have now one more opportunity to sit under the sound of thy word in thy presence, O Lord Jesus, I pray that thy presence will be a felt reality. I ask that you will speak into my heart and speak into all our hearts today and draw us nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. O oh, draw us nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. We pray in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our wonderful Savior. Amen. Amen. Peter's letter, two letters actually, have got a number of very precious things spoken of. And it seems to me that to Peter... Anything to do with God 
or the experience of grace that he had and the things that he thought about and read and that he then wrote about, all were held in very high esteem. He calls them precious things. And there are some things I would imagine in our families and in our homes that we look upon as being precious. We look upon as being valuable. But here we are today in God's house and we're thinking about the things that have real value, the things that have a value beyond the transient things of earth. And my dear friends today, even though the Apostle Peter speaks of silver and gold, these pale into insignificance in the presence of precious faith, in the presence of precious promises, in the presence of precious blood, even in the presence of precious trial. And these are just a few of the things that were precious to Peter. You know, it was Samuel Chadwick who was once principal of Cliff College in the days of early Methodism, and he said it's an amazing thing. It is always one of the wonders of New Testament witness that the death of Jesus Christ was so soon and so completely accepted and proclaimed to be the basis of faith, the substance of the gospel, the center of fellowship, the standard of life, and the badge of discipleship. Now, there are many references that could uh, relate into every single one of those headings, but because time goes so quickly, I leave it with you there. You can look over the message again, perhaps, as you view it, perhaps, online or whatever, in due course. But anyone who is conversant with the Word of God will know that the disciples did not relish the thought, the concept of the cross. In fact, it made them feel they did not want to ever experience such a thing that would happen to their Savior. Peter said, Far be this from you, Lord. And on the night when Jesus was in Gethsemane, they all forsook him and fled. The only one that followed afar off was Peter. I imagine, of course, having said that, that we must include John because it does seem that John was somewhere on the fringes of that night later on in the trial. And there's backing up in the Scripture to prove that. But my dear friends today, the thing which they feared, the thing which they did not want, became the very focus of their lives. Their teaching and their preaching was all centered around the message of the cross. And it's true to say today that in the cross of Christ they gloried. And when John Bowering, Sir John Bowering, wrote his wonderful hymn, and I know I've referred to it sometime in the past year because it's so very precious uh, about the cross of Jesus, the wonderful cross towering over the wrecks of time. In the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time. All the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. Now Christianity is unique in that it bases its preaching, teaching, and its living dynamism on the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no other religion in the world that would ever think of basing its teachings and preachings and foundations on such a thing as the cross, that their leaders should die in what would seem to be abject weakness, 
that he would be crucified between two thieves almost seems to add to the ignominy of the event and be left to hang there in shame in a public highway. All of this, my friends, is something that the natural man and natural religion recoils from. But the thing that was the symbol of shame and disgrace by God's power and grace became the very dynamic of the Christian gospel. And that's why the apostle then writes when he says in his letter to the church at Corinth, the apostle Paul, he said, the preaching of the cross is to those that perish foolishness, but unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto us who are saved, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That deserves an amen. Because God said it and Paul wrote it and I believe it and hallelujah, that settles it. Amen. And so if we just to go right into the message today, I've said again, no, no religion will base its fundamentals on the message of a cross. But God in grace and in mercy and in predestined wonderful love and grace and power determined that the Son of God would give his life on a cross so that all around the world today, on every continent of earth, there are people who know Jesus, love the Lord, and have been to the cross of Calvary. Sometimes on our Facebook feed, there comes up a church in South Korea, not only one, but others as well. But one of these particular churches in the city of Seoul, and what amazing singing. It's a church with a membership of 60,000 people. And when you see that congregation assembled, and the choir, and the pastor leading it, and singing these very same hymns that we sing, 60,000 people on three galleries all around with a whole base of the church absolutely full of people. What an amazing thing. My friends, what will heaven be like when we get there? 60,000? That's only a smitchen of what will be there because from every tongue and nation, the vast assembled hosts will be gathered singing and praising and saying unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, to him be glory forever and ever. And as I look over you today, there are those of you today and you have loved ones who are already at home and they're already in the glory. And someday soon, I hope to join them. Oh, what singing. Oh, what shouting. Oh, what praising God. And of course, the very heartbeat of it is the precious blood of Jesus and the powerful name of our dear Redeemer. There are three simple and very definite thoughts now that I want to share with you today that kind of come out of this brief introduction. And first of all, when the Apostle Peter writes here, he speaks about redemption. We are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold. That is a major principle in the Bible. This bloodstream 
of redemption runs from Genesis to Revelation. God knew no other way to clothe our first parents after their fall rather than by the slaying of a little animal and then clothing them with the skin and the flesh of that little animal. Oh, my friends, today, to be clothed with the sacrifice of a lamb and to come to the book of the Revelation where the Lamb is all the glory and 28, 29 times in that amazing book at the end of the Bible, the Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And the theme of redemption arches over all those books from book 1 to book 66. What kind of thing is redemption? It was quite a common thought and quite a common theme and quite a common issue in the days when Peter and the apostles were writing. Because if I was to take you to the marketplace in those days, there were marketplaces where slaves were sold. And in the Roman Empire, there were some 60 million slaves. And so it was a very common thing. And you could have gone along all those lines of people who were there with a price, with a value on their heads. And masters would come and they would pay the price and they would take the slave or the servant home and he would serve then in their house or whatever for the rest of his life or until he should be released. There were two ways that a slave could be freed from having to work in such an environment. First of all, if he could raise enough money himself, he could be free. That was highly unlikely because they were dependent on people buying them and then giving them the necessities of life. The other way that a slave could be set free was if someone was to come into the marketplace and pay the price for the slave and then say to that slave, you can now go free. There was no more claim on him because he had been set free by someone who had paid the price. The Apostle Peter takes that concept and lifts it up into a whole new level, a whole level of spiritual power where the eternal God, looking down from His throne on high, decided, determined, and eternally so that someone should step into time and pay the price to redeem a slaved mankind. And we're here this morning because Jesus came to set the captives free. That's what he said he came to do. He came to open the prison house to the prisoners. And I know that there are those of you this morning and you're still a captive. You're not yet set free. You are not yet experiencing the joy of redeeming love and power and transforming grace in your heart. You've been coming to the lifeboat. But until this day, the 20th day of August 2023, you're still a stranger to Jesus Christ. The cross means nothing really to you yet. It has not yet found a place in your heart. It has not yet captivated your heart's devotion. Oh, what a change needs to be wrought in your life. And thank God, this day, that which is so historic can become so personal 
and so powerful and so real to you that you can leave the lifeboat this Lord's day having sought the Savior and come to know this Redeemer for your very own. We've been singing about it a little earlier on. I will sing of my Redeemer. And you might even have been singing, but as yet, you do not know the redemption that he has purchased for you. You do not yet know the freedom that he has purchased at Calvary's rugged cross for you. But today can be the day whenever it can become a reality in your life. Now, there are many times that the word redemption and redeemed is used in the Bible. Let me very quickly cover three of them. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, we read these words. We have redemption through his blood, the blood of Jesus, even the forgiveness of sins. My dear friends, to the people of Ephesus who had been involved in black arts, who had been involved in idolatry, who worshipped the goddess Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians, who knew nothing of the grace of God, Whenever they were transformed and brought from death to life, the Apostle Paul could write to them, My dear people, we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. And their black past, their unforgiven record, was blotted out. Redemption spells release from an unforgiven past. Have you ever experienced that? Would that not be something that would be good to know? My past with its sin and shame, my guilt and despair, Jesus took on him there, and now in my heart and life, Calvary covers it all. I am no longer held by the guilt of an unforgiven past. I have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And then, of course, it speaks about redemption through the Savior's death, as redemption from the curse. Now, we were singing about that earlier on. I didn't pick the hymns that Roy picked for this morning, but it all seems to fit in, you know. And when Paul writes to the churches at Galatia, he says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. The Bible says the law is good. It is perfect. There is no flaw in it. And by nature, we cannot keep it. And because it is so, we are condemned by a perfect law. Why? Because we are born with, in sinnerhood. Because we are born into the family of humanity that is cursed by the fall. And now, of course, under condemnation by the law. But Jesus came and by his perfect life kept that law, fulfilled its demands, and by going to a cross paid the ultimate price so that we might no longer be under its curse. The Bible says, Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. And of course we know that that refers to our Savior. Ultimately, primarily, supremely, but for heinous crimes, sometimes a Jew would be stoned because they were not by crucifixion. It was by stoning. And then that dead body would be hung up until sunset. 
had to be taken down before sunset because it would be a, an open evidence that others might not follow the same pathway or do the same thing. But our blessed Savior was not a dead body hung on a cross. He was a living form. And he was not there for sins his own. He was there for mine. He was there for yours. And he took upon himself the curse that sin had brought. But he also took upon himself the curse of the law so that we might be free, what from? From condemnation. There is now no condemnation. Amen. There is now no condemnation, says Paul, Romans 8, verse 1, to those who are in Christ Jesus. And Charles Wesley said, No condemnation now I dread in his wonderful hymn. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Sin is manifold. It is bad behavior. And praise God today, there is release from the record of bad behavior. Thank God today there is freedom. There is release from the curse of a wrong relationship. We are reconciled to God by the death of His Son. The enmity has been put away, and now we are in one with Him. And then the Apostle Paul again writes that Jesus Christ gave himself for us. Why? So that he might redeem us from all iniquity. And the word is anomia. It means lawlessness, rebellion, that he might redeem us from all rebelliousness and all iniquity and purify us unto himself a peculiar people. And that word peculiar doesn't mean quirky. It means his own special treasured possession. My friends, I have a special treasured possession. It is Jesus. But I am to him. <laughs> I am to him. Amazing wonder. I am to him a special treasured possession. He treasures me. He loves me. He watches over me. He possesses me. And he has procured the very best for me. Someone said once, Jesus, knowing the very worst about us, has purchased the very best for us. And sin goes deeper than bad behavior. It goes deeper than a wrong relationship. It goes to the very heart of a perversity, of a dominating tyrant, of an inward uncleanness and impurity. And the cross work of Jesus in his mighty power goes to the very heart of the need, to the very nature of sin and sinfulness so that we can sing and say as you do in these lovely hymns, Oh, now I see the cleansing wave the fountain deep and wide, Jesus, my Lord, mighty to save, points to his wounded side. The cleansing stream I see, I see. I plunge 
and oh, it cleanseth me. Oh, praise the Lord, it cleanseth me. It cleanseth me. Yes, cleanseth me. I say again, redemption addresses our relationship to sin. It also addresses our relationship to the law. And it addresses our relationship to sinfulness in the heart. Oh yes, my dear friends, there is a Savior from all sin. If you only let him into your heart, he there will reign while you trust him. He will put the evil out. He will save from every fear and doubt. And you'll soon begin to shout, Hallelujah. A major principle. There is also a master price. A master price. I know that in inference that has been covered, but of course the great event of redemption to redeem a slave out of the marketplace and to buy him free. It, it meant the transfer of a, a price, a, a coinage. It was called the Lutron. And when the Lutron passed from the man who bought the slave to the person who was selling the slave, then the price had been paid. And the price that Jesus paid, the lutron of redemption, is not in silver or gold. It is in blood, precious blood, precious blood of Jesus, ever flowing free. Oh, believe it. Oh, receive it. Tis for thee. And the precious blood of Jesus Christ spoken of by Peter is the same blood that John speaks of that cleanseth from all sin, that cleanseth through and through. And you know, my dear friends, today, it is God's total remedy. When I was thinking about this this morning earlier on, you know, we are commonly acquainted with blood. We all live because we have got blood veins and blood flows within our bodies, and the life of the flesh is in the blood. But our blood can redeem no one. It has no redemptive quality nor power because we are part of Adam's race. But, oh, men and women today, there is one who stands supreme. There is one who has never been like he was any before him, nor anyone after him, whose blood is different blood. It is divine blood. And when the apostles, when Dr. Luke was recording the, in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 20, he speaks about the blood of God. Divinity is in the blood of Jesus. And one drop of that all-cleansing blood can bid your sinfulness depart and fill you with the life of God. The blood flowing down, taken up into heaven, and now it pleads. It pleads for justification. 
It pleads for reconciliation. It pleads for sanctification. It pleads in intercession. It pleads for victory. And praise God, it will plead glory all the way through. Andrew Murray wrote a wonderful little book many years ago, The Power of the Precious Blood of Jesus. And every chapter is a different aspect of that wonderful Redeemer's blood. Reader Harris was quite a remarkable man. He was a Queen's counselor, a powerful preacher. He has a little book called His Sin and Necessity. And he talks about one time he and his family purchased a house. They got it at a quite a keen price. It had been on the market for some time. And when he bought it and they moved in, they weren't very long in the house until they found a kind of, quite, a, quite a strange smell in the house, particularly somewhere about the kitchen area. And of course, when they investigated, they found that under the house there was a cesspool. It was full to the brim. It was a legacy of the previous owner and the family that had been left behind. And Reader Harris thought, what am I going to do with this cesspool that is underneath my dwelling house? And so he got a builder to come in. And the builder said, you know, Mr. Harris, I could arch that over. And he said, I could seal it around so that you wouldn't feel that smell. But on the other hand, he said, if you're willing to pay the price, he said, I could take the whole thing out completely. We could clean it out right from top to bottom and cleanse the whole thing clean. And Reader Har said, that's what we'll do. He said, we'll take the whole thing out completely. We'll make it perfectly clean. And they did that and put the new floor down. And it said that the Harris family lived happily in the house from then on, my friends today, I want to tell you that the blood of Jesus can go deeper than the cesspool of the human heart. It can go deeper than the stain is gone. And his blood can make us perfectly clean. That's why we sometimes sing, and I don't know if it's in making melody or not, Lord Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. I want Thee forever to live in my soul. Break down every idol, cast out every foe. Now wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Whiter than snow? Yes, whiter than snow. Now wash me. And I shall be whiter than snow. Yes, the major principle, the master price. But there is a moral pattern. And the Apostle Peter speaks about that. And let me just touch on that for a little while as our time is coming to up to the top of the clock. A moral pattern. You notice that we started to read at verse 13 after reading the first five verses that tell us what we have in the Lord Jesus. Then the apostle says, out of that there needs to be a practical moral dimension, how it affects our lives, what areas of our being it works into. And he speaks from Chapter 1, verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He speaks about the positive power of a mind that is spirit-controlled. 
The mind is a devil's uh, target in these days. But I thank God today that there's wonder-working power in the Lord Jesus Christ and His precious blood to stand sentry duty round our minds and that every thought should be brought into captivity to the will of God. And what is that? That is a life of holiness in our mental capacity. And then he speaks about a settled mind. Be sober. Be sober. It means be calm, be steady, be controlled, and it is the opposite of being carried away. What grace there is in the blood of Jesus, not only to bring our thoughts into captivity to the will of God, but to give us a steady mental focus on the things of Jesus Christ. Oh, that our minds today might be girded around, held up, strengthened, fortified against the fiery darts of the wicked one. Satan is out to attack our minds, but Jesus is there to preserve our thoughts. Oh yes, I pray today that our thoughts are held in control, not only by our own discipline, but by His attentive and supportive power. Gird up the loins of your mind. Pull your thoughts together. Have a disciplined mind. Not only does He say that, He says be sober. He says be obedient. As obedient children, walking in the light of God's love. As obedient children, verse 14. And it's better to obey, says the Bible, than to sacrifice. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And then he says, I want you to be sober, I want you to be obedient, and I want you to be holy. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And holy living is the intended standard for a true salvation. There is the positive power of a life of holiness. There is the reverence and the reverential blessing of a life of godly fear. Because in verse 17 he says, If ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. What is he thinking about? Well, he's thinking about the day when he and all those who profess the name of Jesus must stand before God. He's thinking about the judgment seat. He's thinking about the day when the accounts will be sorted and we will stand to give an account of our life's work and our life's service and our life's living. What a day that will be when everything that we are and what we have been and what we have done will go through the fire test. And the Bible says there will be that which is wood and hay and stubble and consumable. And that which will be gold and silver and precious stones. Dear Lord, I pray that much will remain after the fire. God forbid that I should stand at the judgment seat, knee deep in ashes. Oh Lord, help me so to live a life not in fear of you but a life of godly reverence, because that's what he means.
And if we live, my dear friends, in the light of the judgment day, then we will find that our walk and our talk and our interpersonal relationships will all be formed and fashioned by that awareness. One day I must give account of my life. Not as to whether I will be in heaven or not, but as to where I will be in the grading and in the awarding. Oh Lord, just to be there is wonderful, but why should I want to scrape in by the skin of my teeth? Dear Lord, I want to go through victoriously. And to do that, we need to yield ourselves to God. To do that, we need to be surrendered to Him. To do that, we need to give our lives, our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him, and live in His perfect will. And then there is briefly and finally the warmth of a life of perfect love. Did you notice that wonderful verse? I have it underlined because it's so significant. Seeing ye have purified your souls, verse 22, in obeying the truth through the Spirit, and it's not by our self-efforts, my friends, it's by the enabling Spirit of God that all of this is done. It's by His power working in us that we become people who live a life of holiness, who live a life of godly fear, and who exude a warmth of perfect love. Unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. What a concept that is. Loving one another with a pure heart fervently. Every single word is freighted with power. Every single word is heavy laden. See that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently. There is no place, my dear friends, for bickering. There is no place here for holding grudges. There is no place here for an un lovable attitude, a toxic interpersonal relationship. There is every place here for the warm flow of the river of perfect love. So that as he looks down, he can say, there's a copy of my heart in that man's heart. Dear Lord, a copy, Lord, of thine. I want that. I want, dear Lord, a love that feels for all, deep, strong love that answers every call, a love like thine, a love divine, a love for high and low. On me, dear Lord, a love like this bestow. Oh, I pray today that whatever we be, and however strong we may be, and however fundamental we may be, that it will not be a harsh holiness, but that it will be a warm, heart-throbbing purity, power, peace, and perfect love. 
that we might be examples in the midst of a crooked and wicked, perverse generation among whom we shine as lights in the world. Oh, that the Lord might write his word into all our hearts today. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, today I thank you for your precious word. Its concepts are really sublime. They really are, Lord. Its depths are yet not fully plumbed by us. The dimensions of Calvary and all that that procured for us, there's an ocean yet untapped. O oh God, by the name of the Lord Jesus, I pray that the practical dimensions of redemption, of the purchasing power of the blood of Jesus that issues out in a life of holiness unto Jesus, that issues forth in a pattern that is molded by godly fear, that issues out in a life of warm-hearted love, the love of the Lord. O oh, Savior, dear Lord, on me a heart like this bestow. Write thy word into our hearts today. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen.